0: Welcome, or hopefully welcome back, to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. For those of you who continue to count, this is episode number 132. Today, we'll take a deep dive into the world of conformal coding. More and more assemblies are being subjected to conformal coding to protect the assembly from harsh environments. What's leading the drive to conformal coat electronic assemblies? What types of conformal coding options are available? What are the advantages and disadvantages of each type? For circuit assemblies, the protective embrace of conformal coatings ensures reliability, longevity, and performance. As technologies advance, so does the demand for innovative solutions to safeguard our electronic products. Whether you're a seasoned industry professional, a curious tech enthusiast, or just someone who's new to the world of conformal coating, this episode is your go-to source for in-depth information on the growing trend of applying conformal coating to circuit assemblies. So join us as we peel back the layers and immerse ourselves in the world of electronics protection and learn how conformal coatings play a pivotal role in keeping our devices humming, even in the harshest environments. To better understand conformal coating, I invited Lisa Rizzo to the show. Lisa is Senior Director of Strategy and Emerging Applications at HZO. HZO is a global leader and innovator in protective solutions that, according to them, keep the world running. They provide products to markets including consumer electronics, as well as high reliability markets including automotive, industrial, medical, and IoT to deliver more resilient, reliable, and a durable level of protection. HCO specializes in nano coating solutions that safeguard electronics, electrical products, and critical applications in an ever-changing market. So, welcome again to the Reliability Matters podcast. We'll take a deep dive into the world of conformal coding when I return in just a moment. Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques, with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate you.
0: Well, I appreciate you being here. Um, before we get started with the really exciting stuff, let's let's uh, let's just kind of go off track a little bit um tell me something about yourself that might come as a surprise to your colleagues and and maybe even some of your friends let's get the audience to know you a little bit better
1: (laughs) i had to think about this one and i'd love to tell you that i alligator wrestle on the side or do um, Ah, all my guests do that no i don't do that but um one of the things that uh, if only a few people know about is that i'm a yoga teacher for fun um obviously oh, my wow. full-time job is here at hco but um i have completed my 200 hour and my 300 hour yoga teacher training um i finished uh, so uh, so i'm actually a, a registered yoga teacher for 500 hours and um wow. besides teaching at yoga studios i actually help out with some of the senior community where I live in Burlington, North Carolina. So I work with a lot of people that have, um, you know, healthcare issues and and injuries and things like that. And we we try to stretch it out over the weekend. And I just work with them to make sure that they have better mobility in their lives and that it's a lot easier for them to get around.
0: Interesting. So the fact that this is kind of a little known fact means you don't show up to work with your yoga mats and try and get yoga recruits. You're not the yoga instructor over lunch or anything like that.
1: No, no. In fact, they do where we work in the industrial park. They actually have yoga teachers that come in and teach in the um, kind of the lounge area for the different buildings here. And I never tell them that I teach yoga. I just go in and take Uh class and don't, you know, I'm in the judge free zone. I'm just trying to uh, practice and get my, my practice in a little bit. So yeah, I keep it. That's a secret I keep in my back pocket.
0: Oh, very good. Yeah. Um, it's probably best to not let people know, like if you're a, a waiter or a waitress, you go to a restaurant, you don't tell them you are. If you're a flight attendant, you tend not to tell them yeah. you are because you can sit and observe from a, you know, from a uh, a common perspective, right? Of what, exactly. <laughs> you know, how good they are or not. Um, before we get too deep into the technical questions again um, regarding conformal coding, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you... Find yourself in this strange world of of um, protecting circuit assemblies, and you know how'd, how'd you get here?
1: Sure. Um, So I've spent most of my career in product management. So I've worked on new product development for different companies in the consumer product space. Um, I worked for Rubbermaid and then also in the industrial space. I worked for United Technologies for eight years. Um, So I've always worked in new product development and emerging technologies. Um, But one day I actually got a call from a recruiter and they were telling they started to tell me about an exciting opportunity that they had for a company that was going to be relocating from utah to north carolina and i met with the recruiter and then i met with a few people from hco and um, they really got me hooked into um, conformal coatings because you know literally almost everything you use in your day-to-day life you want to have some protection on it. And I just saw the opportunity for myself and for the company to grow and expand. Um, and I was actually North Carolina hire number two for HCO. So they moved, like I said, from Utah to, to Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and I've been here a little over four years and I really love the industry. I love what we do. I get pretty passionate about our Uh, conformal coding technologies and all the opportunities we have to expand our markets and also just with the new product development side, I work with a brilliant team of engineers and scientists. Um, So I'm never the smartest one in the room, uh, which is always nice. But yeah, I work with a lot of great people and that are really passionate and care about what they do too. So that's a little bit of how I got into working for HCO and getting into the conformal coding space.
0: Yeah, uh, fascinating. Uh, i I do think the i'm I'm quite biased I've been in the electronic uh, industry um, for thirty seven years considering i'm only twenty seven years old I must have started in utero <laughs> but um uh, but but uh, yeah we can hey we we make technology we can break the rules uh, but, but what I find fascinating about our industry isn't so much the subset sections of our industry the coding, the cleaning, the placement the printing whatever it's the fact that we build cool stuff. Our industry builds everything everyone uses every day. Even in mm-hmm. the most remote parts of the world, there's some technology out there. And, and uh, you know, sometimes when, you know, I have a, a factory where, you know, we build uh, assembly equipment and, you know, I sometimes have to remind all of our team members that, you know, it, your job is not putting a screw into a hole or, or, or putting nails in a crate. You know, your job is to, you're part of building something that runs the world, right? I mean, mean, look around you. I I dare you to find something, you know, find no electronics within 30 feet of you or maybe 10 feet of you. There's always something there. And our industry built that, right? And, Right. um, And your world and my world coincide in that we don't build products that make things. We build products that make things more reliable. And... You know, and there's some, I don't know, there's some value there. I i feel good sometimes, you know, when i like, what do we do? You know, well, you know, my friends will never see what I build at the store, you know. Uh, they don't have a clue what we do. But, but I can just tell people we make everything that you use that plugs into the wall or has a battery, we make it work <laughs> more reliably. And you can thank me later, right? Not that we get that, but. But um, you know that's too deep down the rabbit hole for most most civilian type people. Um, so Rubbermaid, there, there's a name that you used to work for Rubbermaid. That are they still around? In one form. They or are. One?
1: They've actually merged with. They've bought other companies, acquired other companies. They continue to grow. And I used to manage the their circular saw blade line. Believe it or not, under the Irwin brand, and the. The very cool part of managing Sawblaze is that they were, at the time, manufactured in New Zealand. So I got to go to New Zealand a couple times, which was just nice. a bonus.
0: <laughs> nice. Took one for the team there, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was really tough to twist my arm to get me to go there. But um, I really looked out in that respect. But working in a, for a consumer products company really helps give you a sense of urgency, especially when it comes to new product development, because it's really evolve or die. So we were constantly coming out with new products, which made it exciting. You had to stay pretty um, light on your toes um, because consumer products are definitely an aggressive sort of environment to work in. But um, oh, yeah. I really enjoyed my time there.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's start, talk about HCO briefly, just to put all of our conversation in context. Um, I, If you've watched any of my shows or listened to any of my shows, you always know I'm fascinated by company names and the meaning behind them, you know, particularly when they're They're curious, right? H-Z-O is a curious name for me. There's gotta be some meaning behind that. So what's the, how did H-Z-O get its name? What does all that mean?
1: Well, really, it's a takeoff on H2O, the chemical compound for a water molecule. And when HCO first really began, um, our focus was really on protecting electronics from water. Um, But we've really evolved to go beyond just protecting um, electronics and printed circuit boards from um, just water. We, We go well beyond to safeguard your products against harsh environments. But I wish there was a much bigger story to it. But it was really just a play on on H2O. That's how we got to where we are today. Oh, very good. Um, so it wasn't was, some
0: drunken night where someone hit the wrong key. No, it wasn't that.
1: Well, no, I can't say anybody's willing to fess up to that. It, it could have <laughs>
0: been. <but laughs> we'll leave that in the rumor stage. Yeah. I yeah. remember several years ago, um, seeing someone speak on behalf of HCO at a conference or symposium or something. This was several years ago, and it was all about waterproofing, as I recall. So to your point, uh, that seemed to be the original motivation. And then, of course, there's a lot more damaging things than just water out there. So um, you kind of fall into that whole protective category. Um, and, And bring me and my audience up to speed with HCL. What types of products and services do you offer in a macro and a micro sense?
1: Sure. Um, well, the way the way we go to market, we offer solutions and kind of a two-pronged strategy. So our first strategy is that we, we sell coatings. obviously. We specialize in coatings as a service. We have centers of excellence here in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I'm based, and our research and development team, our finance, sales, and marketing are all based. But then we also have centers of excellence in Dongguan, China, Hanoi, Vietnam. And by the end of this year, we're going to have a coding center of excellence in Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, But customers can ship parts to us from to any of these locations and they can get a thin film um, chemical vapor deposition, plasma enhanced chemical vapor deposition or an atomic layer deposition coating on their parts. Um, So that's one way we go to market. Um, We also have what sets us apart a little bit from from some other conformal coders in the market is that we can offer to clients who have large scale production lines a factory and factory model. So we can go into, especially in Asia where there's larger manufacturing plants for electronics, we can go into their contract manufacturing plants and get a small section of their their factory floors and we can set up our coating production lines, including masking and demasking. um, And we can have them uh, take their parts, hand them over to us. We'll do our part of the process and then we pass them back on to the next part of the production line usually packaging and testing and then the parts um, can get shipped out to customers so factory and factory model is a really innovative way to help service large scale production lines. Um, we also do some equipment sales and leasing, not as much as we do the factory and factory model or the coding as a service model. Um, but HCO also, we also offer solutions um, to our clients in the form of consulting and specifying materials um, and coding processes. So we have a really large team here that has a lot of experience to meet the material and market challenges for our clients. So we partner with those clients to perform different functions where we even will run experiments and tests. If they have a theory about a coding and something they wanna try out, maybe a different dimer or a different material, um, we, will, we will do some, some coding, we'll do some testing. Um, we'll provide technical support on proving the material out, and then we even can help our clients with equipment specification. And we can uh, partner with them to design equipment um, for for coating, for masking, and for demasking. So we've really evolved into um, offering a couple different services to our client base.
0: Um, within the coating world, there, the coating world is fairly wide with different types of mm-hmm. coating, different types of materials. Um, and you're in a little narrower, um, section of that. But before we get into that, um, if you would, just so we can help put things in perspective, let's review the various types of conformal coating, um, from what you guys do, which is, you know, ultra thin nano type coating to more, I'll call it conventional. I don't know if that's really the proper term, um, cause I'm not sure which came out first. <laughs> yeah, Kobe, you're the conventional, but, but, um. Um, I, I think the more broadly um, viewed, when someone says conformal coating, if they're not a super expert on it, they may, I think most people probably at least think of the, the uh, more legacy products, the acrylics and the, and, and the and silicones and things like that. Uh, let's talk about conformal coating from a wider perspective, and then we can start narrowing it down. Uh, what types of materials are out there, and, and what are someone's choices uh, when it comes to conformal coating?
1: Sure. Um, Well at a high level, traditional conformal coatings are really um, specially engineered polymeric uh, film forming products that protect circuit boards and other kinds of of electronics and devices really from harmful environments that can include everything from moisture to thermal shock to vibration or static and just uh, different forms of contamination. So conformal coatings will actually coat an entire part or conform around that part, irregular landscapes that you're gonna see on circuit boards and other devices. Um, and they'll what they'll do is they'll help increase the dielectric resistance, the operational integrity, and the reliability of the part um, or parts that you're coating. And most of the traditional conformal coatings that we think of are acrylics and silicones, epoxies, urethanes, and then even perylene, which is really our wheelhouse. Um, But, you know, acrylics, those are very good in all of the traditional conformal coatings that I'm talking about today. Um, They have multiple formulations out there. So um, there's lots of different flavors and varieties that you can get today. But, you know, the traditional acrylics are a really, um, and and, and acrylics and silicones and epoxies and urethanes, they're going to be... liquid forms where paralines and, and plasmas are going to be um, more of a dry coating process. But, you know, acrylics are really great. Uh, they're a great low cost option for customers who are looking for a conformal coating that's going to be flexible and reworkable. Um, you know, acrylics will definitely adhere to a wide range of, of substrate materials. You'll get you know good resistance against humidity and salt and you know they have good dielectric strengths um, so they, they definitely have a lot of pros um, they can be a little bit limited in the solvent resistance and temperature resistance um, and they can get a little tacky if they get exposed to higher temperatures but they're a good low price option to use for conformal coatings Um, And then you get into more of your silicones, which a lot of people are very familiar with, and those are flexible and reworkable, too. Um, But they have a little better resistance to to low and high temperatures. Um, They don't have they don't absorb water. Um, The only uh, one of the downsides to using silicones is that they can outgas if they're not cured properly. Um, they don't have a lot of abrasion resistance, um, and they tend to have lower tensile strengths. But again, you have to look for each manufacturer. They definitely have different formulations that you can look at that are going to offer different um, protection levels. Um, and then, you know, we don't see, epo- I don't see epoxies as much being used, but they do have really good abrasion and chemical resistance. And they have a little higher tensile strength um, than some of the other traditional uh, conformal coatings. Um, they can be a little tougher to rework because they can be a little more rigid and can have a tendency to crack under vibration. Um, and they, you know, they can also be used um, to encapsulate parts, uh, not just as a conformal coating. Um, and then you've got your polyurethanes; um, those are going to typically have better chemical and abrasion resistance. Um, but you know, one of the downsides is that they can take a little bit of a a longer time to cure and um, they can be a little tougher to remove uh, if you need to remove them in spots. And and sometimes they can even, some of the formulations can yellow a little bit after time. Um, But those are the typical traditional conformal coatings that a lot of people think of. Um, And and the nice thing about the liquids is that they can all be, uh, you can coat parts in either a batch process or more of an inline production process. Um, and then there's the chemical vapor deposition um, coatings, which is really what our wheelhouse is, and um, what people most commonly think of is is um, and and Paralene is a really good multi-purpose conformal coating. So it provides high levels of protection against submersion. So if you have an electronic device that needs a high uh, ingress protection rating, that's where perylene comes in really handy. Um, it's a uniform pinhole-free coating, um, and it can penetrate into really small spaces, so it's a good barrier um, for for chemi- uh, corrosive chemicals and liquids and gases, and it has really good dielectric strength. Um, but you know, sometimes uh, it, the challenge for perylene is going to be that it's it's a batch process and it has a longer deposition time than. Um, what you're gonna see with the liquid conformal coatings. Um, So there's definitely trade-offs between the different conformal coatings that are out there, but that was kind of the 40,000 foot um, view of what they are.
0: Yeah, (laughs) the press box view. So uh, you mentioned that um, perylene type um, uh, conformal coating uh, materials are done in a batch system. Is that because uh, it's done under a vacuum? Um, Therefore, it's really hard to have a conveyorized vacuum
1: um. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So we use um, we use a vacuum. All of our chambers, whether it's um, CVD or PECVD or ALD, we all have we have coating chambers. So um, the parts will go get loaded into the chamber, and the deposition times it's going to vary depending on how thick the, the thin the film coating needs to be. Um, so you know if you're having if you're going to have a coating that's a couple microns thick, it's not going to take nearly as long as something. That's you know twenty or thirty microns thick, but it's also going to depend on what dimer you're using. So some dimers deposit faster than others, um, but typically you're going to see anywhere from a six hour to a fifteen hour deposition time from start to finish. Where the with the liquid dispense coatings, it's going to be much shorter because it's that inline process.
0: Right. What in your view is um, driving the growth in conformal coating. I'm in the cleaning world, so I, you know, cleaning and coating, the two Cs tend to go together quite frequently. So, you know, if there's a rise in cleaning, which there is, there's clearly a rise in conformal coating as well. What what do you think from your perspective uh, is is driving the, the need or the desire to, to coat?
1: Sure. Well, I think as we see electronics evolve, um, You know, there's there's new developments all the time and these products keep improving Um, if you compared a You know a pair of earbuds or a smartphone today versus years ago. You're going to find out that those electronics have um, really advanced in their design and their fabrication method and as we become more connected with these consumer electronics and then everything whether it's autonomous vehicles or um, interconnected health you're seeing that Um, these advancements in electronics are really forcing more uh, miniaturization of every of electronics and printed circuit boards and there's also um, a desire to you know really enhance the performance and the requirements for these circuit boards and electronics so as the designers and the engineers have to keep developing smaller thinner you know, more durable devices that are gonna be used in a range of, you know, low criticality, all, all the way to high criticality applications. Um, you know, they these devices, and, and also there's an expectation that the devices have to work sometimes, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, especially in the medical space. Um, clients really want thin film coatings that are gonna be high performers. So I think that's really some of the big driving factors to why people are looking towards Conformal coatings, and they're also looking to um, really get chemistries that are going to produce high-quality films that are going to be, you know, thinner and thinner and thinner. You know, we at HCO we don't typically work beyond fifty microns thick of a coating of coatings, um, but we have customers that come to us that are looking for you know coatings that are ten to hundred nanometers thick. So um they've got design requirements where they've got a little bit of space they can't have a lot of weight in in thicker and heavier either encapsulation materials or enclosures um, or cases so they're looking to thin film coatings to help support um the requirements of the devices that they're working on
0: And you talk about the the thickness uh within your space um your vacuum deposition method is is a traditionally a much thinner coating than more spray on liquid methods. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. I mean, uh, with traditional conformal coatings, a a lot of times you're going to see the applications in that 50 to 250 micron range. Um, We don't do anything over 50 microns unless somebody has a very specific request. So their bottom,
0: their, their thinnest is your thickest basically.
1: Correct. Correct. So, and, and, you know, now with atomic layer deposition and plasma enhanced chemical vapor deposition, you know, we're doing coatings that are as thin as, like I said, 10 to 15 nanometers up to one, two, even three microns thick. So, so definitely a lot thinner than what we've seen in the past.
0: So this is a really kind of a common sense question, and I'm sure there is a technical answer to it, but um, logic would tell me that the thicker the coating, the more protection there is, right? Uh, Not knowing anything about the chemical process. So, Mm -hmm. and I know that's not true, but I don't know why that's not true. So explain to me and my audience, mostly me, um, how a much, much considerably thinner coating material can provide more protection or what advantages there to the thinner coating material relative to its protection value. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, let me, and, you know, I'll definitely try to break it down. So it does really come down, honestly, to the chemistries, um, in my opinion. So, um, you know, w- with with perylene, I'll start with perylene. Um, we have different uh, variants of perylene dimers. So we have the, the typical perylene C or perylene N that most of our customers see. And, and that's where we're going to use those coatings and the, you know, 10 to 25 micron range. We can go up or down, you know, depending on what the customer needs. But the the chemistry behind perylene C and perylene N, those polymers just happen to be more effective at, first of all, depositing really um, not just thin film coatings, but really pinhole free crevice free layers that you don't have to worry about cracking or bending. You know, they they flex with the, the parts as they flex. So they provide a really Um, uniform uh, coating across the device. So first of all, you know, from a chemistry perspective, you've got advantages to the different types of dimers you can use, or when you get into, you know, the plasmas or the ALDs, you're going to deposit, you know, metal oxides or nitrides that are going to be more effective than some of those traditional conformal coatings, but also just the way they're deposited. Um, From a mechanical perspective, you've got these thin coatings that don't have, they don't have areas where they're, either pooling up too much with coating or the coating is too thin. Um, you know, they and because of the conformality of the um, the, the different CVD processes that we use, even if you have like, we're always going to recommend that you send us product that's very clean. But even if the parts are not as clean as they should be, our uh, coatings are going to actually conform even around that contaminant to pr- to, to really protect that whole surface. Um, And then also a lot of when it comes to deposition, um, it's not just the cleanliness of the substrate, but it's also what types of adhesion promoters that you're going to use to adhere the coating to the substrate. We We have a lot of work that we've done that's proprietary for choosing what kind of, you know, primers or adhesion promoters you're going to use on top of your substrate because every substrate is going to behave differently. So, you know, FR4 is not going to necessarily perform um, have a coating adhere to it the way an aluminum or a stainless steel is going to have a coating adhere to it. So um, there's different adhesion promoters out there that you can use that will help the chemistries bind better to the substrates themselves. So I hope I didn't go too far out there and different, but there's different reasons behind the chemistries, the way you can make those chemistries work and adhere to the substrates that will really um, impact why we can go so much thinner than some of the traditional coatings that are out there and why we can get better performance levels out of them.
0: Excellent. Um, You know, I live in the cleaning world. So again, uh, uh, I can't remember if I said this off air or on air, but as Maslow said, you know, if all you have is a hammer, you see the, everything as a nail. I see everything as dirty or clean. Uh, and every time I read a, a conformal coating material, like instruction thing, it always says, clean your board. You know, Or, or it doesn't say clean your board. Uh, the, the, the substrate needs to be clean and dry for good adhesion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, when I go around the country and the world, for that matter, speaking on the subject of cleaning, I al- always show this old television commercial from the 1960s, this guy. Named Earl Scheib, he was known for painting cars, and he would paint any car back in the day. He would paint any car, bumper to bumper, any color you wanted for twenty nine dollars and ninety five cents, and and he was just famous in the way he talked. and I won't try and mimic it, but it was like, oh, I am Earl Scheib. I'll paint any car for twenty nine ninety five, and it always wondered. I always wondered, you know, how can you paint a car for thirty bucks? You know, that's a lot of labor. There's material. There's whatever, and then I realized that, you know, in in some cases anyway. Uh, they didn't really do any surface preparation. They they didn't prime, they didn't sand, they didn't clean, they didn't dry. They, you just kind of drove in and they sprayed it, sprayed the color. And good news was if you had buyer's remorse, you picked the wrong color, don't worry about it. It'll probably peel off in a couple of weeks. You know, it's it's, it's all about surface prep. Um, so I, I love to push that example when it comes to um, uh, conformal coating that, you know, you really need, it's all about surface energy and, you know, good adhesion. And then I, I can't tell you how many people will come back to me after after I talk and go, you know, we've been conformal coating over boards that have not been cleaned, you know, reflowed with no clean flux for years. It's fine. It's fine. It's, even though that's not best practice, many people still say it's fine. What's your take on the importance of a clean and dry substrate? And what's your best advice for surface preparation? Okay.
1: Um, well, we always recommend to our clients that they clean their boards prior to sending them to the, to us, and if they can't, then we have, um, we will actually clean the boards for them. Mm. Um, so just a little bit of a, a background, you know, bare boards can have a couple different types of contaminants. I, I think sometimes people don't always think about this, but, you know, you can have you know, everything from flux residue to etching salts, to even just like grease from people, if they're not using, you know, gloves and, and PPE, yeah. they're gonna get grease and finger, just yuck, <laughs> you know, salts or oils um, onto the parts. So we always recommend that, you know, circuit boards or even just other parts that customers send to us, we actually um, advise them that they should be clean. There's You know, we have written procedures of what we recommend, but in general, um, we recommend that they clean their boards with like a vapor degreasing solution or some kind of a sustainable cleaning fluid. Um, They can use an aqueous wash and rinse cycle. Um, But, you know, we we always recommend that they do use some kind of a cleaning process. Um, You know, the vapor degreasing process can use, you know, a, a cleaning fluid that is gonna immerse and, you know, really um, envelop the part that it's trying to clean. And then we recommend that you dry it to remove any extra contaminants that could be on the board or the device that you're sending us. Um, But we view it as a very important step uh, prior to even putting any of the parts into our equipment. So, um, you know, we have, like I said, a couple different processes that we recommend for cleaning boards and devices. But to us, um, even though perylene can conform and can coat parts if they have some contamination on them. Um, we really, we really highly recommend and advise customers that they need to have their their parts cleaned before before any kind of conformal coating process takes place. So we view it pretty as a, as a very important part of the process. And sometimes we'll even have clients that reach out to us and we'll say, "Oh, you know, we don't understand why this other coating that we're using." isn't working, and then we'll get samples, and we'll see how dirty the parts are, and we're like, well, you know, the, <laughs> you, can't, you can't put perfume on a pig. I hope I'm allowed to say that, but you
0: can't. No, I think, that's a, I think we should have posters that, that, that represent <laughs> that, that sentiment, because um, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But yeah, it's a very important part to a to recommendation to either have the client do it or we will do we will clean the parts before we put them into our chamber. Because the other thing is we want to protect our equipment, too. Um, we don't want those contaminants inside, even though we we um, have processes for maintenance in between each production run. We don't want our equipment to get contaminated either.
0: Yeah. And that's unique to your your application method if you're Mm -hmm. spraying on it well I guess it's it isn't it isn't I guess if you're spraying you know traditionally a a liquid you want to make sure that the it's sitting on something clean just like if you're baking Mm -hmm. cookies you want a clean cookie sheet right you don't want Mm -hmm. you know something from months ago uh, that hasn't been cleaned Uh, but in your world particularly uh, if that contaminant gets into the chamber it can be cross-contaminated to another Mm -hmm. another assembly right correct yep and how important is uh, uh, dryness of the assembly, and and I not just on the surface but within the layers if it's a multi-layer board? I, you know the, the instructions all say clean and dry. What do you guys mean yeah. by dry?
1: Well, we we will actually again part of our process is we'll bake boards to 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 drive out that moisture or parts before we put them into our chambers um because it'll just end up taking longer to deposit the films because as you're you're pulling your vacuum on that the the coating equipment if there's moisture in the process and in the chamber it's just going to take longer and you know we already deal with (laughs) wanting to have you know shorter um, deposition processing times so having having um you know any any moisture inside the chamber itself is just going to make it take a little bit longer for us to process the parts so um you know, just in general, we want to, we will take all the precautions that we need to, to make sure that the parts that we're putting into our chambers are dry also.
0: If there's a failure in conformal coating, um, what are those failures attributed to? And what are the remedies or what are the mitigation techniques to prevent those failures? We talk about cleaning. That's, that's a good one, right? If it's an adhesion failure, but, but I'm sure there are other things that could relate to that as well.
1: Um, where we will sometimes, you know, adhesion is a big issue, and and um, again, that's why we've done a lot of work in developing different weight, different adhesion promoters, which we don't t- disclose, um, but we also have different adhe- um, adhesion promoter processes. Um, but contaminants are a big issue. But the other uh, another issue we deal with is. Um, If parts are, you know, they need to be properly in a lot, especially with circuit boards, they have to be properly masked and demasked. So if we have coatings that have gotten into um, areas that they shouldn't, that can become an issue. Um, If there isn't um, coating in the spots where we need it, that's where you're usually going to run into defects. That's where you can run into issues with shorting. You can run into um, issues with with, um, you know corrosion attacking certain parts of the um, boards if they haven't been masked and demasked properly, um, but I would also say that you can run into issues with coatings where just they, they will delaminate if they haven't been properly applied. So those are really kind of the biggest issues that we will deal with, um, and I, I, I think it's probably pretty similar when you're looking at using um, you know traditional liquid coatings also.
0: Yeah. Um, what safety precautions, or and or environmental precautions, does one need to consider when they are um, maybe bringing in-house a conformal coating process, whether it's factory in a factory, as in your model, or or you know setting up a conformal coating booth and spraying the, the smelly stuff on onto the boards? What 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 are the safety and environmental factors that one really needs to know of in advance?
1: I really think the biggest challenges and the issues that um, clients have to be aware of is proper ventilation. So because you're going to be working with, I almost don't care what chemistries you're working with. You do have to make sure you have the proper procedures in place to adequately vent the chemistries, the solvents. If you're working with solvents, you have to be able to vent um, all of those materials um, you know, out of the the area that you're working in. Um, You definitely have to have the proper um, uh, PPE or or, uh, personal protective equipment. I think that's a big issue. Um, I used to work, and the reason I I stress this is because before I worked for Rubbermaid, I used to work for um, a company that made safety gloves and respirators. and eyewear, um, so that's a particular sticking point for me. Um, but you have to make sure people are wearing the proper PPE and they know how to use it. So if they have to have respirators, that they're using the proper respirator, um, that they have the proper gloves that are gonna, you know, not every, just cause you throw a pair of gloves on, it doesn't mean it's gonna protect you from every chemistry that's out there. So making sure you know you have your safety data sheets for the chemicals that you're gonna be working with and you have the proper, um, you know, PPE equipment to use is going to be just as important um, as as having proper ventilation, um, especially with the liquid conformal coatings. Um, Our process, like I said before, is a dry process. So you still have to have PPE on, but your, um, you know, our system's will properly vent any of the chemistries away. And um, so we take care of that. But that's a big issue. And just having your employees trained on how to even put the PPE on on correctly, um, I think is really important. I've seen all kinds of things out there from the years that I spent in the safety industry that um, I'm a big fan of training, training, and then a little bit more training.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I think all of us have had experience through the COVID madness of watching people you know, we can argue whether masks are truly effective or not. There are people on both sides of that debate. Either way, whether they are or are not effective, when people are wearing them as chin diapers, as South Park called it, you know, more than face masks, then clearly, if they were effective, they are not effective in that environment, right? So, so you're right. It's, it's, it's the application of that, of how, to, how to use it. Just having one in your pocket doesn't make you any safer. Um,
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: when it comes to rework, uh, rework is kind of a, a one of the dark arts in our industry, right? It, it, there's science involved, but it also is it, it is a, a an artisan thing. You know, you have to know what you're doing. Um, one of the challenges. I do a lot of speaking around the country on on the subject of cleaning and and therefore I'm around people who talk about coding like yourself mm-hmm. and everyone talks about the application of, com- of conformal coating, and very few people talk about reworking conformal coating because that's kind of the it's not easy it's not sexy it's not you know it's, it's it dissolve it in a super strong solvent or blast it off with you know uh, whatever CO2 or wh- whatever they're using or, or um, um, whatever they use as a medium but um, it, it's it's, it's not a push button, you know. Pull a part off, put a part on, and recode it. It's 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 a dirty process in the from the rework standpoint. Are are there materials that are more easily reworked, more difficult to rework? Uh, how does uh, the materials that your company uses stack up in the level of difficulty or uh, or ease to rework?
1: Um, well, first of all, I have to get this plug in because um, there is a miss conception around Paralene that you can't rework it mm. um, so that's a sticking point for me but I, so I do want to assure everybody that paraline while it's not the easiest coding to rework it can be reworked um, we recommend if you need to remove Paralene from a, a board or, or you know a device that you remove it you can use different abrasion techniques there's thermal methods out there um, you know depending on how How much rework you have to do? You can do um, laser laser ablation, and you can Mm -hmm. even um, solder through the material. But it can be reworked, Um, and I can speak more to paraline because we we don't um, we will use liquid conformal coatings as maybe a secondary backup, um, a supplement to to um, like a touch up if we have to do it. Um, So we don't typically work with um, reworking liquid um, conformal coatings, but. Um, I can tell you that Paralene, once you remove it, um, you can reapply some Paralene either in the entire area, you can re-coat the part, or you can reapply it just in a specific area, or you can just use a spot touch-up of a a supplemental conformal coating. Mm -hmm. Um, But but it's actually pretty, it's not as hard as everybody thinks it is to remove. Um, But then, you know, with liquid conformal coatings, they typically will have a, a remover that you can use to Um, get those coatings off. And, um, but, but I also do like to stress with, you know, with, with perylene in particular, um, the reason, you know, there aren't solvents out there. Well, there's very harsh solvents out there. You can probably use like a THF to get rid of perylene. Um, But the advantage to perylene is that it, it does provide such, such excellent protection against a wide range of corrosive chemicals and liquids. So um, because it's so great at protecting the part, that's why it would, it's so hard to remove it.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah exactly. I was just thinking that the, 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 yeah. the benefit on one hand, protection makes it, you know, a more, it's expectedly more difficult. That's logical, mm-hmm. right? If it, if it came off with soap and water, it wouldn't be a good protectant, you know, to begin exactly. with. So you you kind of buy one advantage and get um, a little bit of a disadvantage. Um, but you know, again, what's more important—the the, the keeping a part safe or or being able to you know tear it apart later and 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 fix it? I, I think everyone would agree the former is more important. Both are important. The former is probably more critical, mission critical. Um, what types of companies no let me let me change that What types of products in your world um do you find better suited for paralines and vacuum deposition models as opposed to just spray on liquids um what what would drive someone to that conclusion um and and, and um, yeah let's just leave it there what is there a particular type of industry that tends to just knee jerk toward that technology, or, or an alternate technology, or or is it really very application specific?
1: Um, it, I mean, it, it's going to come down to a couple of different factors. So, um, the application for the part is going to be really important. The longevity of the part. If you have a, a you know, a circuit board that's going to be in service for you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Paralene makes a lot of sense because it's going to hold up over long periods of time. I mean, we uh, we have Paralene applications where the devices have been in service for over 20 years. Paralene has a very long history, even before HCO. Paralene was has been used since the the late fifties and sixties to cope medical devices, aerospace devices. So it's got a long history of performance in high critical applications. So if you do have a high critical application where, uh, whether it's aerospace or military and defense or medical applications, Um, Paralene is a really good fit because we know it's going to perform. We know Paralene is biocompatible, so it can be used in medical devices. So it's going to lend itself to those types of applications. Um, If you have even even with um, more, I guess, cheaper uh, consumer electronics devices, um, like, you know, I'll use e-readers as an example because that's something we have a lot of experience with. an e-reader doesn't cost a lot of money but people don't like to have to replace those and you would not believe how many people actually take e-readers and sit in the bathtub and will be you know reading their book and then they you know if they drop that e-reader if the board has been protected with perylene you're going to be able to take it out of that bathtub and you're going to be able to shake the water off and then you can still keep using the the device so um, the application is going to be really important, and that'll even determine for, for perylene what flavor you might want to use, because while perylene C and perylene N are really good multipurpose uh, dimers, there are applications where um, the device is going to be exposed to higher temperatures, ultraviolet light, um, and, and that's where... You know, there's other paralines out there when you start to look at Paralene F, like the VT4s and the AF4s that are out there, those are going to be higher performing dimers. um, And and those are going to be more suitable for some of those types of applications. So application is really important. Um, What your constraints are going to be if you have to have the parts coded um, internally to your facility. so. Um, a lot of aerospace and defense applications, they cannot send those parts out. Whether it's because there's, you know, they're highly confidential, or they um, just the cost. I've had government facilities call me to tell me that they have parts that are worth, you know. Tens and twenty thousand dollars each, and they're not going to ship them out and have them coated. So, that may mean that they would either have to buy a parallel encoder to install in their facility, or they might want to look towards using. Um, either a spray or a dip coating, or you know, s- selective spray uh, liquid coating. So, so some of that is going to play into how you're going to determine which process and, and chemistry makes the most sense. But then also we have to be practical. Like, what is your budget? So, what are the budget constraints? Um, and and what's the size of the parts that you're trying to coat? And how you know what's the volume of the parts? So, there's a lot of factors that play into why you may choose one over the other. Um, you know we find that Paralene definitely lends itself to um, high volume applications. That's why we've coded so many, we've coded millions of devices, you know, in the history of our company. Um, but that being said, if you're okay, if you have a couple small parts and we do deal with clients that just have, Hey, I've got 10 or 20 parts that I need a conformal coding on, I can ship them to you. Um, so you can do coding as a service. Well, you know, and Paralene is going to lend itself to that, too. So I don't want to say Paralene is going to be awesome for everybody, but it can check a lot of boxes. And, um, you know, that's why we've been successful. And that's why our competitive set has been very successful with paraline too. Uh,
0: one little techie question here. I know that in, in the liquid worlds, um, sometimes you'll get a UV tracer so one can see where the conformal coating is being applied, particularly if you're applying it manually. Uh, is is that a thing in a vacuum deposition world? Uh, obviously, it's not being applied manually in that environment. But um, is it important to be able to physically see the conformal coating um, after the after it's coated for inspection purposes?
1: That is a question that comes up um, every so often. Most of our clients that come to us do do want a um, transparent coating that they can see through to see to their devices um so we don't typically use any kind of tracers um and we don't use color either we actually get requests every so often for from a customer that wants a green they want the coating to have a color to it and we don't um you know like while we like to help all of our customers we we don't get involved so much with the coloring and stuff like that but we have We do have access to um, materials that we can get, that we can put into the coating. So there is a tracer. We just, um, I think I can count on less than one hand how many times Mm -hmm. we've actually done that. So it it is possible. We just don't do it typically.
0: Right. Um, In the world of coating over assemblies which contain LEDs, I, I, I've read papers in the past that talk about certain types of coatings will discolor over time. I think you referred to some of the yellowing of of, the, uh, of some of them, um, uh, and, and that could alter you know, the amount of lumens that, that emit from the diode or or, or the color of that. Uh, is, is that a thing it, with? Uh, is that a concern in in a vacuum deposition uh, model like a perylene model? Um, mm-hmm. Is that discoloring possible? I, I would think it's so thin that there's not a lot of discoloring to happen. But but tell me it, about, it, more about that.
1: It it can happen with um, you can get yellowing of a, a perylene C or an encoding. coating. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where. Um, you're going to, you know, we recommend looking towards the higher performing perylene dimers, and that's where you get into more of that perylene F. There's um, there's two flavors that we work with of perylene F. It's uh, BT4 and then AF4. And um, especially when you get into the AF4, which is a very high performing dimer, um, that is where you're not going to see that discoloration um, if you're exposed to, you know, a lot of UV light. So, So there's options out there. Um, but then you have to look at the how practical it is. Like if you've got these big outdoor LED displays, how practical it is to try to use a chemical vapor deposition process um, with those those dimers on on parts that are going to be so big. So um, that's where sometimes more of the traditional conformal coatings are going to are, are going to be more um, you know typically used.
0: Since these. Um... Since the process your company specializes in uh, is a batch process, has to go into a chamber, uh, is there a maximum size chamber, uh, or do you guys make custom chambers for unusual applications? Or How, do, what is it, how does that work if someone has a, a large format, large footprint uh, assembly?
1: Well, we uh, our Pro seven hundred and fifty machine, which is if you look on our website, that that's the piece of equipment that we use the most. Um, that's got a meter. That chamber itself, coating chamber, is a meter cubed, um, and we develop different fixtures and racking. Um, to go inside that chamber to hold different parts. So if you've got a couple really large parts, they can fit into that chamber. Um, or if you have lots of really small parts, we can d- develop fixtures to hold those parts inside that chamber. Um, but but as far as um, CVD equipment for perylene, that's, our our chambers are the, are the biggest ones in the industry that we know of. Um, we have smaller coating chambers uh, even here in Raleigh that we will, we have smaller, um, Chambers that we'll use to coat like smaller runs or when we get into using some of these more expensive dimers like Paralene F's, we will use the smaller chambers for that. Um, If we have a client that has a specific request, you know, we can develop smaller chambers for them. Uh, There is some existing equipment out there from from other people that we. If they are only looking for like one machine and it's for like a you know a university or something like that we'll we'll probably recommend that they buy somebody else's equipment Mm -hmm. um but if there's an opportunity where they need us to look at reconfiguring a chamber we can do it but like i said we 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 also try to take into account if it's just a you know a one-time um request then if we can you know point them in somebody else's direction we'll do that but um we we do have a lot of options because our chambers are so large we can coat a lot of large parts the only thing we can't do is every so often i'll get a call from somebody who's like i've got a 10-foot pipe here that i need coated can you guys do that for us and yeah that's a little out of our (laughs) that's a little out of our wheelhouse so that's gonna be a sorry we can't help you with that but um but stay tuned you know down the road i think you're gonna see more and more um uh, product development out there where there will be ways to um, coat larger longer parts with um, apparently there'll just be different application methods yeah.
0: so you, you kind of gave me the perfect segue to my last question uh, which is get out your crystal ball Lisa and <laughs> uh, you know without giving away any proprietary secrets I don't mean this in, in a HZO sense, but in a larger industry sense, where do you see the future of conformal coding from a technology standpoint, from an application standpoint, from uh, market share, not, not market share with HZO, but, you know, how many more people or fewer people will be doing conformal coding as time marches on based on the, the trajectory you see today?
1: Sure. Um, I re- I believe that coating materials are going to continue to evolve and chemist- with the chemistries that are out there and that are getting developed. We're going to see more and more options out there for lighter, thinner, high-performing um, coatings. And I think we're going to see a lot of advanced techniques out there. So um, I think we're going to go well beyond the brushing and the dipping and the spraying and get into, you know, more of the more advancements in, in vacuum deposition. I think we're going to see people leaning more towards using um, not just perylene, but also atomic layer deposition, where it's going to be nanometer thin coatings of oxides, metal oxides and nitrides, where they're going to stack layers of different, you know, thin films to get different performance characteristics, lower uh, lower water vapor transmission rates, but, also excellent chemical barriers and and different levels of protection. So I think you're going to see a lot of advancements um, on the vapor deposition side. I think you're going to see as more and more people learn about some of these processes and there starts to be more demand for it, you're going to see more um, process development where you're going to be able to use, you know, uh, single reactors to do multiple types of deposition. I think that's that's going to be here a lot sooner than we think, and it doesn't exist already um, with some manufacturers. But I think people are going to really start to lean towards these, you know, nano coatings, much thinner coatings, um, and I think they're going to use them. I think we're going to get further and further away from um, encapsulation materials and more into just coating the base parts. Um, I think people, because a lot of the encapsulation materials are using, um, you know materials that are not so environmentally friendly. So I think you know, there's gonna be this constant push to get away from chemistries that have PFOAs and PFOSs. People are gonna to wanna to use halogen-free alternatives. Um, there, it, it's gonna be a push to get you know, meaner and greener with, with, the, um, with the coatings that are gonna be out there and available. Hmm.
0: Well, very good. Well, thank you, Lisa Rizzo, for being my guest today. Thanks for enlightening me and hopefully my audience on the ins and outs of ultra, ultra thin uh, coating in particular. And thanks for putting that part of the market in perspective for me and my audience. If uh, uh, my audience has any questions specifically for you, um, is it okay to share your contact information in our show notes?
1: Of course, thank you.
0: All right, be careful what you say because <laughs> your, your mailbox will be overflowing. Um, so for my listeners and viewers, Uh, If you're if you're listening to this or watching this and and you have more questions for Lisa on the subject of conformal coding um, or yoga, for that matter, those of you who tuned in late, they're going to go, what's he talking about? Yoga, you have to watch the beginning. Um, (laughs) Just look at the show notes Uh, when when you're safely pulled over uh, from your car. um, go to your podcast app and uh, look at show notes, and you'll see Lisa's contact information as well as the company information. Uh, and if you're watching this on YouTube, right down here somewhere, there's a little button that says "Show More." Click that, and you can read the show notes there as well, and that will also have Lisa's contact information. So, Lisa, thank you for spending the last a little over an hour with me and and my audience. I really appreciate your knowledge and your willingness to share it with me and my audience.
1: Thank you, everybody.
0: Well, that's another episode. Thank you for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to click the like, subscribe, and bell icons to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks again for being part of our podcast family. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.